both of your heart and of the hearts of all who bear the name of Jesus Christ. Fundamental to the Christian belief is the faith that when we look to Jesus Christ, God will begin changing us more and more into his image. To deny the hope of change is to deny the power of the gospel. Now that being said, everyone in this room has experienced the frustration of their own heart being slow to change. And we have all been disappointed by the lack of true change in others who bear the name of Christ. And our experiences make us reticent at times to believe change has occurred in someone else. And the story of Joseph proclaims to us that true and lasting change is possible. At the same time, Joseph's caution to believe that his brothers have changed helps us to see that true change is not common or natural. Now the saga of Joseph is history. The conversations that we read about occurred. The actions that are recorded happened in time and space. The characters are real people with real thoughts, much like yours. But while this story is history, it is more than an historical account. As it is given to us on the pages of God's word, it is what we call theological history. You see, in God's absolute sovereignty over all things, he is using this particular family and the relationships of these brothers one with another to teach all of us theological truth. And God teaches us in the saga of Joseph that he is able to transform even the most wicked of hearts. He can take people who are full of jealousy and hatred and turn them into people of self-sacrificing love. That is what is occurring. And ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, jealousy and hatred are not just a problem of Jacob's sons, they are a problem of each one of us. I mean, we even see other examples in the book of Genesis, right? Cain and Abel. Jacob and Esau. It just is a repeating problem that we see occurring. And what you need to understand is that if the blessing promised to Abraham is ever going to truly be fulfilled, 
You know, when God shows up and says, I'm going to bless you, bless you and your children, I'm going to bless them, they're going to bless others, everyone's going to enjoy this wonderful life of blessing. If that's going to happen, true love must reign in the hearts of every one of God's children. We have seen over the past few weeks that the jealousy and hatred of these brothers is so strong that they would sell Joseph into slavery. If you had watched these brothers do this, if you had been there watching them do this, your heart would have said, I don't know if they can ever change. And so when we look at this transformation, this is a a demonstration by God himself that he is able to take even the most corrupt heart and turn it into the heart that he wants it to be. By the way, this is the main reason, I believe, while most of the world thinks Christianity is irrelevant. Oh, there's lots of different ways you can work on your life and bring about change, but Christianity is not one of them. That's what the world thinks about the church, that God is no longer in the business or maybe never was in the business of changing people. We have to hold on to the truth given to us in the word of God that God is about changing people's lives. Not only must God change the hearts of the brothers, from hatred and jealousy to love, but he also has to change the heart of Joseph. God has raised Joseph up to a position of power. He is no longer a helpless victim of other people's crimes. Now he has the power to exact revenge if he wants to. How is it possible for the pains that Joseph has endured at their hands to not drive him to want their destruction. How can God transform a person like Joseph from a man who would naturally seek revenge into a man who is now seeking reconciliation? As you can see, God has a lot of work to do before reconciliation can take place. What about your life? In what ways can you relate to Joseph? How have you been hurt by the sins of others, even those bearing the name of Christ? You may be asking if it is possible for the feelings of bitterness and hatred in you to ever be removed and to be replaced by love and affection. Maybe you can more relate to Joseph's brothers. You may not have thrown someone into slavery, but how often have you been jealous of your brothers and sisters in Christ when things go well for them? How often do you lack true empathy when they face trials? If the truth is told, we are all a long way from having the love and affection that God desires in us. When you imagine eternal life, 
step back here a second and just try to dream about eternal life, what eternal life will be like. I want you to imagine another brother and sister in Christ with whom you're not too fond of right now. You know, you might be happy that they're in another congregation and not this one. Or that they're on the other side of the room rather than right next to you. When you dream of eternal life, do you dream of living in perfect fellowship and harmony with that brother or sister? I don't know about you, but I often think about what I want. I'm going to get this wonderful things and I'm going to be happy. Maybe I imagine being reunited with my wife and my children and those who are my closest friends. But those with whom I don't really get along... The saga of Joseph declares to you and I, in the 12 brothers, it's not enough that two of the brothers get along with one another. It's not enough that Joseph and Benjamin get along. It has to be Joseph getting along with all of his brothers and all of his brothers getting along with all of them. It is the entire body of Christ coming together in love and harmony. This is the challenge that God has. It's not your challenge. I mean, it is. It's your, your obligation, your duty, but it's him. He's like, man, if I'm going to give blessing to, to Abraham, I'm going to have to fix this problem among my people. And this is not just a problem of Joseph and the 12 uh, sons. It is a problem of the church as a whole. It is that which Jesus Christ has accomplished through his own life and death and resurrection. Listen to his prayer in John 17. All mine are yours. And all yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Now let's get closer to the text now. At the end of chapter 43, Joseph have, had provided a rich meal for the brothers. And in Middle Eastern culture, but really in every culture, if you sit down to eat with someone, there is a hyper obligation to not do that person any harm. So to actually sit down and enjoy a meal together and then turn around and actually do something against them, that's really, really wicked. That's heinous. So in this situation, Joseph has this meal with these brothers. He, he, he pours out lots of gifts and blessing upon them. But in the, in the midst of giving them this blessing, he gives five times as much blessing to Benjamin. Now, there's no way Benjamin could eat all that food. That's not the point. You know, it's just, he's just basically saying, oh, I love all of you, but this guy here gets the most blessing. And Joseph does this purposefully. You see, because what drove his brothers to send, send him into slavery was the fact that their father gave more blessing to him than to the rest of them. 
And so he's trying to recreate that scenario because he wants to know, has their hearts been changed? So that's where we pick up the story. Genesis chapter 44, verses 1 and 2. Then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now it's very important. Most of these acts are not ones of treachery. So previously when they put the money back in, it was like, did, did you steal that money? But in this situation... They just know that Joseph is being generous. He's being overly generous. He's being kind to all of them. That's the issue. The only thing that Joseph would not have given was his own personal silver cup. And the abundance of all this giving makes whoever steals this cup incredibly wicked and guilty and worthy of death. Joseph is setting up the, 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 uh, the test because he wants to put his brothers in a situation where the brothers have every reason to abandon Benjamin in the way that they abandoned him. Verses 3 through 6. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up! Follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. The irony in this situation is that the brothers are innocent of stealing this cup. But they are not innocent of hatred and jealousy towards Joseph. The brothers actually think that this is about, initially, the, the cup. And so they defend their innocence. They all say to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. Now it's easy to miss here that the brothers, even before the test is fully sprung, the trap is fully given, they are functioning as a unit. Could they not have said, oh yeah, the one, if that cup is found among anyone, take them, we're out of here. Instead, they say, we will all rise or fall together. They are willing to bear the guilt of any other brother who may have committed the crime. They actually trust one another. This was challenging to me. Very challenging. How many of you identify with the sins of other Christians in that way. Is it not far more likely that we look at the sins of other Christians as being separate from us and distinct from us? Like, I can't believe they did that. 
Instead of actually saying, we rise and we fall together. The solidarity of these brothers is amazing. But, it works against the trap. And Joseph has prepped his steward. And he, there's no, it's like, no, 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 you're, you're, not, you're not falling into the trap quite right. We're supposed to separate, isolate Benjamin from the rest of you. You're not supposed to be together. So then in verse 10, the steward says, let it be as you say. He's not, oh, that's pretty good. Thanks for saying that. He who found, he was found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. See how he's again trying to separate the brothers from whoever the guilty party is. The rest of you guys can go home, because he wants to spring the trap. He wants it to be incredibly easy for them to say, oh, forget Benjamin. 11 through 13, each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Now you could feel the tension, you know, oldest to youngest, little by little. And you get to Benjamin, you're like, no! Do the brothers automatically accuse Benjamin? Why did you do this, Benjamin? Fool! No! They tear their clothes. There's grief in their hearts. Benjamin's guilt or innocence is not even the point at this, at this time. They simply believe that Benjamin is one with them. And they do not abandon him. Each of them to a man returns to the city. Now let me ask you this question. If you were Benjamin and your brothers acted this way, how would you feel? When you're down, when you're struggling, whether it be with your own sin or others or just life itself, how does it feel like when some other Christian comes alongside of you and believes in you and says, I'm going to fight with you in this struggle, whatever it is? It's amazing. It's probably the reason why I'm a Christian today. Explained all of my heinous sins to my friend back in, in, in high school. And you know what he did? He, I, he called me up and he said, Mike, I got your letter. You want to go bail hay with me? I thought, what? You're not running from me? They're telling you all my sins? Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Probably not likely that, that he has been practicing divination, but he's still creating this, uh, this like how does he know these things? How, does he, how did he know to send the steward? It's like he's got divine knowledge going on. The main point of this verse is that he actually accuses them. how could you do this wickedness against me? Kind of reminds me of the way Satan accuses the brethren as well. 
And then Judah rises up to speak for all of the brothers. I really believe he reflects not just his own desire, but really all of the attitudes of the brothers. Notice the plural. Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he in whose hand the cup has been found. Notice in this verse that Judah admits the guilt, not just of Benjamin, but of all the brothers. And this is a case of wondering whether or not Joseph and Judah are speaking about the same crime. You see, Joseph is accusing the brothers of stealing the cup. But Judah is admitting a guilt that all of the brothers have committed. Maybe he's just speaking out of solidarity, like we spoke earlier. But maybe he also remembers the guilt of selling Joseph into slavery. You see, it's not Joseph's ability to divine truth that has found out this guilt. What does the text says? God has found out the guilt of your servants. You see, they may not be guilty of stealing that silver cup, but they are guilty of a crime far worse. Judah does not demand his own innocence in this one situation with the cup. He knows that even though he is being unjustly accused in this one instance, he is guilty of crimes far worse. How often do you, when you're accused of some crime, some maybe petty crime, and you're like defending yourself, and no, I didn't do that. How often are you reminded of the even more heinous crimes that you have committed against your Lord and Savior? I believe this this overwhelming sense of guilt and responsibility that Judah is expressing actually takes Joseph by surprise. I don't think he expected that. I think he expected them to defend, to lie, to do whatever they could to get out of this situation. But he doesn't. This must have been a good thing. Joseph's like, oh my goodness, something really is happening in in my brothers. But it doesn't work according to the trap. So Joseph tries to spring the trap a little bit better. He says, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. As for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself, my Lord. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? So here's what's going on. Judah sees Joseph as the judge, as the governor, as the Lord of Egypt. And Judah says, but Joseph, he didn't say Joseph, but governor, are you not also a man? Do you not also have a father? Do you not have brothers? 
I want to appeal to you on the level of humanity. I find this so ironic because because Joseph loves his dad. He loves his brothers. And, and, And here's Judah saying, are you just a governor? Are you without feelings? Can you actually think on the level of empathy? Very ironic. And so Judah wants to bring Joseph to understand the plight of what he is feeling in this moment. Verse 20, we said to my Lord, we have a father. He's an old man and a young brother, child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left in his mother's, of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said, my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. We went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. When our father said... Go again, buy us a little food. We said, we can't go down if our youngest brother goes with us. Then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Long story short, Have compassion on us. If we don't return with Benjamin, our dad will die. If it doesn't physically kill him, it will bring sorrow upon sorrow upon him. This is another case of incredible irony. Judah is trying to evoke compassion in Joseph for Jacob. But what he's actually doing is demonstrating his own compassion for his father. This is exactly what, Ju- what Joseph wants to see. Judah, instead of being jealous over dad's love for Benjamin, is willing to have pity and compassion and love towards his father, Uh, to save Benjamin. Judah is almost ready to make his appeal. Verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Being a pledge of safety establishes this groundwork for this appeal that he's going to make. 33 and 34. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers 
For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. We are so close to the gospel here. Judah could have just begged mercy and said, let us all go home. Instead, he offers himself as a substitutionary payment. You realize this is the first substitutionary payment in all of Scripture, human substitutionary payment. There have been animal sacrifices payment, but there has not been another human being. Why is Judah willing to sacrifice himself? Why is he willing to take Benjamin's place? Not really for the love of Benjamin. It's for the love of his father. Why did Jesus go to the cross? In the garden of Gethsemane, yet not my will but your will be done? Because he loved his father, he went to the cross. Judah is certainly driven by love for his brother, but do not miss the foreshadow of our Lord Jesus Christ. He offers himself freely for his brothers out of love for his father. Is it not also a symbol of Christ when we see Joseph, I mean Judah willing, he is in the place of probably going to have the, the honor of being the firstborn, the one who will get the double blessing, those sorts of things. And he is willing to give it all up, his inheritance. I'll be a slave in Egypt for the rest of my life. Take Benjamin. Is that not like Jesus Christ leaving his throne in heaven to come down, to be mocked and ridiculed so that he could save you? Is it any wonder that Jesus comes from the line of Judah? Judah is not the Messiah, but God has used him to help us understand the work of the Messiah for us. How incredible is this? You see, when I want to preach a sermon, I have a theological truth, and I go look for an illustration to try to support that theological truth. God says he wants to make a theological point, and he takes his family in history and says, let me show you what Jesus is going to do through this historical people. Unbelievable. Talk about sovereignty. He is the master teacher. We all bow before him. Judah has finally rung the bell. Joseph is now convinced. It's not just words. Judah has demonstrated in his life, in his actions, in his feelings, that he is a changed man. He has passed the test. It's not a test of perfection. I'm sure if you looked at Judah's life, you'd find plenty of areas that he was not perfect. But he has genuinely been changed by the grace of God. Joseph has wanted this moment all along. But he understands that as long as his brothers are filled with jealousy and hatred, there can never be the oneness that they want to have. 
You see, it was jealousy and hatred that caused the rift in the first place. Think about this in your own life. Does God just forgive you and leave you the same, never to actually change you? It would be awful. Can you imagine going up to heaven? Hey, man, we're all forgiven, but we're just as full of jealousy and hatred now as when Christ first saved us. It would be terrible. So when God goes out to save a people for himself, yes, he has to deal with their guilt. He has to overcome the punishment that they deserve, but he also has to change them. And this is what's so frustrating with us because we're still in process, aren't we? But here's the deal. Do you believe that the change that is occurring in you is primarily something that you have to bring about? Or is it something that you can trust that your God is accomplishing? It is an act of faith for every one of you sitting here today to believe that God will not stop working in your life until he has fully and completely brought about the change to make you who he wants you to be. Because you're not there yet. Paul says in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own. So there is an effort. There is an effort to press on to become perfect. But listen, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, the struggle with ongoing sin creates a crisis in your heart. You know, you pray the prayer, Lord, create in me a new heart. Get rid of that evil. Give me a new life. And then years later, you're still struggling. Some of the same attitudes. God, why? Why did you not change me? Why have you not made me who I'm supposed to be? Think about these brothers. Did the change in Judah's heart happen overnight? Did it, did it just quickly happen? No, years, 20, 30 years. Was it because he set out to make that change or because God took him through all sorts of circumstances, humbling him, bringing him through failures so that he could at the end bring him to a place that he wanted him to be? Sometimes when you, well, I ask this question to people sometimes when they're struggling with sin, and I say, what do you do now? Almost every time I ask this question, you know what they say to me? i got to try harder. i got to do, you know, and, 
you know, there is a trying harder in the Christian life. I, I, you know how much I love to work ethic. I, I think it's great. We don't just sit on our bump and we're not transformed by doing nothing. There's something to be done. But it is a terrible answer. It's not a gospel answer. The first answer is to cry out to God, acknowledging your sin, reaffirming your faith in him, clinging to him to do what he promised to do at the beginning. And from that place, you can strive. But you can't strive in your own strength. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Jesus Christ is your only hope of change. He is the guarantee of full and complete transformation of your life. Your life. Don't let anyone tell you that change is not possible simply because it hasn't happened yet. When I originally thought I was going to preach this sermon, I was going to go all the way through chapter 45, verse 15. As you can see, it's already late. We're not doing that today. Because the reconciliation, the sweetness of the reconciliation, the, the glory that we're going to feel when we see each other face to face after the resurrection. That glory is what I wanted to get us to, but there's still more to get there. So we're not going to get there. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to finish. I can't finish on a, on a bad note. Not, it's not a bad note, but I don't want to finish on imperfection. I want to finish on this beautiful thing. God has brought about this change. And look at verses 14 and 15. Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. This is what God's doing. You get tired of your sanctification, and you're struggling, and you don't like the fight, the struggles. Remember this moment. This is where he's taking us. Yes, we are imperfect. We are struggling right now. But he is taking us to the point where we are all full of joy experiencing oneness with one another. That's our God, and he deserves our praise. Amen.